0: Welcome to another episode of keeping it real today. We're talking about Jordan Peterson, an intellectual of our time. He has taught mythology to lawyers, doctors, and business people, consulted for the UN secretary, helped his clinical clients manage depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, schizophrenia, and served as an advisor to senior partners at a major Canadian law firm. He has also lectured extensively in North America and Europe. Dr. Peterson has published more than 100 scientific papers, transforming the modern understanding of psychology and personality, mostly with his book, Maps of Meaning The Architecture of Belief. He he has published multiple books, and now he has a new one out. It's just released, and it's called. Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. So let's dig in deep on some things about Jordan Peterson that have brought him to international stardom. The polarizing topics that he's had to confront that are very difficult for many people to talk about these days. They separate, they dissect, Our communities and our nation and the world in general, many of these topics, they're very divisive. So instead of just talking about all the good, great, wonderful lectures and stimulating thought processes Mr. Peterson could get you into on this episode, maybe I'll save that for another one. Let's go into the deep, dark, dirty shit and hear what an intellectual guy has to say about some stuff that really punches you in the gut. Let's start out with white privilege. Does it exist? Jordan Peterson argues it does not exist. I would like to agree with Dr. Peterson, as I think. White privilege or black privilege or Chinese privilege or Indian privilege or Japanese privilege or any other culture's privilege can directly be attributed to where you are in the world. If I was in China, wouldn't there be Chinese privilege? Wouldn't Chinese people get better treatment maybe in some circumstances or more favorable treatment than me? Or say if I was in India, wouldn't there be Indian privilege? Maybe in Japan, Japanese privilege. Because we're in America, maybe there is a little bit more of a slant towards white privilege. But I think those days are long gone. And we're talking about something that we don't need to bicker over anymore. And I think it's being brought up as a way for the powers that be to divide us and not let us come together as a united people. And that is what they like is to keep us fighting. I don't want that. I don't have a racist bone in my body. I love every race. So I'm not saying that white privilege doesn't exist because of that because I am racist because that's what a lot of people say is if you don't believe white privilege exists, you're racist. And that's what Mr. Peterson had to fight in the media. Let's hear what he has to say on it because he speaks so much more eloquently than I do. And a little PS after his statement that he makes a man named Brandon Tatum, a black man from Prager university makes a wonderful statement about why he doesn't believe in white privilege, and I just had to tack it on there. It was with the um, statement that Jordan Peterson made, so I just included it. Enjoy.
1: You now I think the idea of white privilege is absolutely reprehensible, and it's not because white people aren't privileged. <laughs> You know, we have all sorts of privileges, and most people have privileges of all sorts, and you should be grateful for your privileges and work to deserve them, I would say. But the the idea that you can target an ethnic group with a collective crime, regardless of the specific innocence or guilt of the constituent elements of that group, there is absolutely nothing that's more racist than that. It's absolutely abhorrent. I can't... I mean, that... that. If you if you really want to know more about that sort of thing, you should read about the kulaks in the in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. K U L A K S, because they were they were farmers who were very productive. They were the most productive element of the agricultural strata in in Russia, and they were virtually all killed or raped and robbed by the collectivists who insisted that because they showed signs of wealth, they were criminals and 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 and, and robbers so and one of the consequences of the prosecution of the kulaks was the death of six million ukrainians from a famine in the 1930s the idea of collectively held guilt at the level of the individual as a legal or philosophical principle is dangerous it's precisely the sort of danger that people who are really looking for trouble would push so, and, and just a cursory glance at 20th century history should teach anyone who wants to know
2: exactly how, how unacceptable that is. Woke white people, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please stop asking for forgiveness for your white privilege. You're not fooling anybody. You're not helping black people or any other minority. And your public confessions don't make you look virtuous. They make you look disingenuous. Which is a really nice way of saying fake, phony, and fraudulent. For starters, what is white privilege anyway? Because you're born with white skin, you have all these advantages that I don't have? Like what? Like you can get a mortgage loan that I can't get? Hmm, I got a loan. At a great rate, by the way. And I got the house. Why would a banker not give a loan to someone who met the loan requirements? He doesn't want to make money? I've never heard of such a banker. Or how about this? You can enter a store and not be looked upon with suspicion, but I, a black person, cannot, except that has never happened to me. But if I was a young dude with my pants hanging down in my butt, I could understand why the store owner would be concerned. I used to be a cop. Believe me, I understand. If I owned a store, I'd be tracking that kid too, whether he was black, white, or anything else. Or what if I had a store that had a history of being shoplifted by young black women and a young black woman with a bad attitude walked in? Would I be suspicious? Yeah, I would. Who wouldn't? I call that common sense, not bigotry. But there's another way of looking at this. In many ways, in today's America, blacks have more privilege than whites. It's been my experience that whites bent over backwards to give blacks every possible advantage. If two people are equally qualified for a job, the black person will usually get it. Big companies and prestigious universities fall all over one another trying to sign up talented black people. If you deny this, you are denying reality, which is what the person who dreamed up this whole thing did. A professor of women's studies at Wellesley College by the name of Peggy McIntosh. She wrote in an article in 1988 about all the white privilege she thought she had. She listed 46, including this one. I can choose bandages and flesh color and have them more or less match my skin. Wow, that's some kind of privilege. Soon others took up the cause. Today, these so-called progressives dominate our colleges and universities, imposing this absurd notion of white privilege on their students. That's too bad because it does nothing good for white students, and it does nothing good for black students. But of the two, ironically, the white students get the better of the deal. Let me explain. To acknowledge your white privilege is supposed to make you feel bad. Only it doesn't. It makes you feel good because by acknowledging your white privilege, you're declaring yourself to be enlightened. And as a virtue bonus, it also makes you a better person than those whites who don't acknowledge their privilege. White privilege, which is supposed to make you feel bad, Ends up making you feel good. Meanwhile, the real damage is to blacks. What makes whites feel good makes blacks angry. More than 50 years after the civil rights movement, the message is you're still oppressed. How can this not create a victim mentality? And anyone of any color who sees himself as a victim gets angry. Now, I wouldn't deny for a second that there are privileges in life. They're all over the place. There's two-parent family privilege. That's huge. There's being lucky to be born in America privilege. There's good gene privilege. But white privilege? Doesn't it depend on the person? Let's take this for example. A black lawyer and his wife have a baby. And a meth addict, single white woman, has a baby. Which kid has privilege? The white one? Because he's white? Come on now. And here's the kicker. Even if it were true. All those claims about white privilege. So what? Would it change a single thing I did? If white people apologize for being white, is that supposed to help me? In what way? So let's be real. White privilege is an attempt by the left to divide Americans by race. It's all theory and all nonsense. If you want to fall for it, go ahead. It's a free country. But don't try to sell it to me. I'm an American who deal with my fellow Americans one-on-one. Try it. It works.
0: Boom. There you go. So hopefully that enlightened you a little bit on white privilege. Now let's move on to the next topic of controversy for Mr. Peterson. It has to do with gender identity and compelled speech. Now, male and female is basically the only genders that science recognizes. Biologically, that makes sense. There can be some mutations, of course, but it is very, very rare. What seems to be the big confusion is belief. Somebody may be male, but believe they are trapped in the body of a man and should be in the body of a woman because they feel female or vice versa. Then there's getting science involved there to induce hormones, to reconstruct yourself as whatever sex you feel appropriate. And then there is that person forcing upon... The public to identify them as whatever it is they wish to be pronounced as male, female, but then it gets crazy because now we're talking like over 70 gender names and surnames like Z and Zer and all these weird ones. There is no way in hell I am going to be pushed or compelled to call somebody by any of these surnames. Basically, what Peterson says is what I agree in. I identify somebody as what I see them in society. And if it's too awkward for me to diagnose, whether it's a male or a female, then maybe I'll just refrain from saying sir or ma'am or mister or missus and find another way to get through the situation if I'm asked politely by somebody that has one of these designations maybe I'll comply because I am a kind person but I will not be forced to And that is where Jordan Peterson stands, which I totally agree with. Compelled speech as a law, forcing people to talk a certain way or facing a hate crime that you can be charged with. Hate speech. What? This is what Canada was passing into law. And Jordan Peterson is a Canadian professor. So let's hear what Mr. Peterson has to say about gender identity and compelled speech. 16 purported
1: to do nothing but extend human rights provisions to an excluded group. Bill C 16 purported to do nothing but extend human rights provisions to an excluded group, let's say, to, to the transgender and non-gender binary types. and, and that was the federal legislation. It also made it a hate crime to 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 discriminate or harass essentially. So now then the question is well, what exactly do you mean by discriminate or harass? And why exactly is that a hate crime under the criminal code? Well, there was an answer to that. The answer was, well, this bill will be interpreted in light of the policies generated by the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Very large set of policies. Now, the Ontario Human Rights Commission is a radically leftist organization. I think it's the most dangerous organization in Canada. Although you could debate that. And they set all sorts of policies about how how This these le- this legislation was going to be interpreted and the federal government linked to their website to state that Bill 16, C-16 would be interpreted in light of those guidelines. So I went and read all the policies. Well, one of the policies was that if you didn't use the preferred pronouns of a given group, that you could be charged essentially with a hate crime. And I thought... No, which that's given no, group is that? You're talking about transgender people. Yeah, and so there's all these pronouns that have come up. There's 70 different sets of pronouns approximately to, to hypothetically describe people who don't fit anywhere on the gender spectrum, which is also something that I don't really understand. I don't understand that conceptually. Like, yeah. well, we, but, we'll, we'll come to that, but yeah, I just but want to the, point the story is, of this bill well, first. Okay, so now I'm com- a, a person is compelled under Canadian law to use the pronoun of another individual's choice by on pain of law. And I thought... Well, no, that's not acceptable. It's one thing to put limits on what a person can't say, like say with hate speech laws, which I also don't agree with, by the way, but that's a different argument. I, th- I think it's a narrower argument. But to compel me to use a certain content when I'm formulating my thoughts or my actions under threat of legislative action, I thought, no, what's happened there is the government has introduced compelled speech legislation into the private sphere. It's never happened in the history of English common law. And so I said, there's no way I'm abiding by that. I don't care what your damn rationale is we're compassionate it's like no you're not no you're not you're playing this radical collectivist left-wing game you're trying to gain linguistic you're trying to gain linguistic supremacy in the in the area of public discourse you're doing that using compassion as a guise and you're pulling the wool over people's eyes and you're not going to do it with me if i was sitting here in front of you as a chat tra- transgendered uh male to female or female to male um, and we began the conversation. At the beginning of the conversation, you stumbled and called me uh, he or she, and I was perhaps identifying the other way around. And then if I'd said to you, please, I'd rather go by she, uh, how would you respond to that on a personal level? How, how would you well, it would to that? depend on the situation, but the way I have responded to that, because I've had a number of conversations with transgendered individuals, is that I use whatever pronoun seems to go along with the persona that they're projecting publicly. It's the simplest thing to do. Now, if we were... So if you would respect their choice? on an individual level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it, with, a, with a with a more uh, contentious pronouns she and she and that sort of thing that's a whole different issue because the question there is well exactly what is it that you're doing when you're asking me to use those words like are you are you compelling me to play your particular ideological game or is this actually a matter of some personal identity that's important to you and those things are not obvious and so in a, in a, in a situation like that the first thing I'd have to do is to try to figure out just exactly what was going on in the situation and that's not simple and so there would be no foregone conclusion that I would address you by the pronouns of your choice. The first thing I'd want to find out is, is, is that just a narcissistic power play? Because that's actually the most likely outcome.
0: So it's crazy, right? So we are supposed to bend over backwards to identify with these people as they wish to be identified. And these pronouns before saying their name now, some of them are so ridiculous. It sounds like I'm announcing a space alien or something onto earth. Z Zer Max is here today. Very nice to meet you. Um, I'm not doing that shit. I'm not playing that game. That's like asking me to call you a buffalo or a freaking dog or a pig or a fucking brick or a tire. I don't give a shit what you're asking me to identify you as a dildo, a kumquat. I'm not going to just randomly assign a name to you or I'm not assigning the name. You're asking me... To call you the name you have assigned to yourself and what you have identified yourself as. Now, that is your choice. You can live in a fantasy world. I'm down with science. I know that men and women are here on earth for a very specific reason. I know we are hardwired to procreate and that we lust for one another. We are attracted to one another. Sometimes these signals get crisscrossed and there is some alternative play in the system. Like a man likes a man or a girl likes a girl. But, um, I mean, stuff like gays and buys and, Now, transgenders and and all these other different people that are non-binary, that don't even identify as any sex. Give me a fucking break. It's uh, I want to be civil. I want to be respectful. I want to be helpful in these areas. And I don't want to be exclusionary and cut anybody out or... Make somebody feel belittled by the way I speak about them, but you cannot run my intelligence into the gutter by asking me to join in with this because I'm not going to do it. I'll be as respectful as I can, but I will not just call you. Whatever it is in the world that you want to be identified as. I do believe in science. And if that offends anybody out there. Well, I'm not sorry. Because it's been around a whole lot longer than this movement. For gender gender identity and compelled speech to name people whatever they identify as and I'm sticking with the science biological facts I like to go with empirical evidence most of the time so let's move on to another case here where Mr. Peterson answers a question that a parent is dealing with with their kids at school and gender identity Hmm. My daughter's school is now
1: teaching gender as a social construct for sexes. Avoids naming boys and girls. What do we do? Leaving is not an option. Well, I guess the first question is, I'll I'll just take you at your word that leaving is not an option. It it certainly might not be an option. Um, I would say your best bet, and this is a casual piece of advice because I don't know your particular situation is to find out how many parents there are around who are also not happy about this and then start to strategize. I mean, look to some degree, what people define as gender is a social construct. So let's look at it this way. So there are things that, make men men and that make women women that are universal across cultures so let's say except for tiny variations um external genitalia so but then there are things that do vary across culture with regards to whether they're regarded as masculine or feminine or male or female and those are more learned so let's say that external genitalia is not a social construct it's not learned if we can't agree on that then we're not going to be able to have a discussion at all so but there are some things about male behavior and some things about female behavior that are culture specific and learned and so to that degree gender is a social construct so so you know you have to give the devil his due but the problem isn't teaching that gender is a social construct the problem is teaching that gender is only a social construct, and that's just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. As soon as someone's doing that, then you know that you're dealing with an ideologue. And the research evidence on that, for example, is crystal clear, apart from the fact that there are morphological differences between men and women, which are quite obvious. Um, You can name a variety of them. Men have wider jaws. They have larger teeth. They can bite harder. Um, They have thicker skulls, as women certainly can attest to from a psychological perspective. They are more powerful in the upper body. They can punch a lot harder. They can throw more naturally. Um, They're they're uh they they tend to weigh more they tend to be taller that's sexual dimorphism human beings are relatively sexually dimorphic as far as primates and other mammals go um they there's difference in in obviously uh w- waist to hip ratio um women's elbows are there a different angle they have finer bones women have a subcutaneous la- layer of body fat that men don't have um women are a little bit more pain resistant um, more pain tolerant they're also uh they also have very high levels of stamina um women tend to be get, have a little edge in verbal ability men tend to have a little edge in spatial ability um and then there are apart from the straight physiological differences there are psychological differences there's a variety of them um women are more enthusiastic, men are more assertive, that's extroversion, women are higher in withdrawal and in volatility, that's on the neuroticism front, women are more agreeable and more polite, that's on the agreeableness front, men are more industrious slightly, and women are more orderly, that's on the conscientious front, and women are higher in openness proper, and men are higher in interest in ideas, and that's on the openness front, and those differences aren't huge there's more overlap between the genders the sexes than there are then there is lack of overlap but the differences magnify at the extremes and they also um, maximize in societies that are egalitarian and then the biggest difference between men and women that we know of psychologically is that men are more prone to be interested in things and women are more prone to be interested in people and that's actually quite a large difference by psychological standards and there isn't any evidence that that is Socially constructed. The counter evidence is that as you make societies more egalitarian, those differences actually get bigger rather than smaller. And even the London Times three weeks ago wrote an editorial describing and not yet another study that demonstrated that. So that's like six and they're huge scale studies. Pointing out that this, the fact that the differences between men and women get bigger in more egalitarian societies is now one of the most well-established findings in all of the social sciences. Thus, demonstrating, for example, that poor James Damore was correct, despite the fact that Google fired him for being accurate in his analysis of the scientific literature. Okay, so you've got the facts on your side. Problem is, is you don't know what to do. Well, there's only one of you. That's not a good number. If you're going to mount a campaign, you annoyed about this. Well, write down exactly what you're annoyed about. What bothers you about this? OK, what would you like to have happen? Because you need to know what the problem is and you need to know what the solution is. Then you have to start thinking about strategy. And one strategy is you need some allies. You need some people on your side. Now, if this is bothering you. The probability that it's bothering most people is very high because it's very rare, especially with something like this. I mean, I would say, and I think the data support this, is that the overwhelming majority of people do not believe that gender is a social construct, that there are four sexes and that avoiding naming boys and girls is a good idea. So you've got, unless you're in a very progressive place, in which case that's its own problem you got to find some people who would be willing to go to bat with you. And then you have to find, it's a political struggle. It's a bit of a war. It's like, okay, who's pushing this? Who's the ringleaders for this? You know, it's, it's certainly possible that most of the teachers don't want to do this either, but they're afraid to say anything. So I would say, this is probably a two-year campaign. And you have to decide if this is something that you want to put your time and effort into. And if you do, you have to conduct it like a, like a war you know, without the violence, obviously, but it, but that's the right metaphor. It's like, what's the set of problems? Who's causing them? What do you want to have happen as a concert, as an alternative? How are you going to tackle this? You're going to talk to your to your local public authorities, school authorities. You're going to talk to the local politicians. You're going to talk to the principal. Are you going to face down the teachers? Are you going to do that with more than one of you? Are you going to have your arguments in order? You know, are, and and then on a more personal front, what are you going to do? With your daughter, how are you going to educate her? Let's say you decide not to take this on on the political or public front. Then you have to have a conversation with her and find out what she thinks, you know, because she'll be doubtful and dubious about all of this. So a lot of that should be asking her questions, you know. So, yeah, that's the best I can do with that.
0: And that is good advice, Mr. Peterson. I don't see how you could offer bad advice to anybody with that intellect of yours. Next, let's move on to the next polarizing topic. What's it going to be? Got any guesses? How about the Me Too movement? Now, the Me Too movement brought about all these women... And even some men claiming that they had suppressed the fact that they had been sexually um forced into doing some things either for work or whatever else. <clears throat> Lots of this came out with superstars. And that's where we saw the majority of it. But then the Me Too movement started going on to college campuses and girls started saying, I was drunk and slept with the guy, but I didn't mean to. He took advantage of me and kids were thrown off campus. Charges were brought up against guys and it started getting ridiculous for a bit. Excuse me. So the Me Too movement. Definitely had some validity. When you look at scumbag motherfuckers like Harvey Wein- Weinstein, the guy, a uh, big time movie producer, has his own company, lots of huge movies that he made, lots of actresses he took advantage of, got them to give him oral sex, let, made them bend over and take his nasty, fat little wiener up their butts. Whatever he wanted. The casting couch. You've all heard the casting couch. You want to be in this movie? Well, suck this dick, bitch. That's the way a lot of Hollywood was working. And a lot of people actually knew it but kept their mouths shut. Once one person opened their mouth and let it roll out, then lots of other people had the guts to join in. And they weren't ashamed or embarrassed. But was it all true? That's the scary thing about the Me Too movement because people always want to believe the victim. They don't want to give the person accused a fair chance. Well, Harvey Weinstein, I'm sorry, there was overwhelming evidence. You're a cocksucking piece of garbage that deserves to rot in jail for the rest of your life for what you did, using your power in such a way despicable next on my list bill cosby you creepy son of a bitch drugging fucking girls and raping them I, it's like having a fucking corpse land in front of you sticking your dick in it you creepy fuck you deserve to rot in jail too both of these guys proved to have done this to multitudes of women okay then you had somebody like uh, Terry Cruz who was um, I wouldn't so much. You could call it sexually assaulted if his ass was grabbed. You could call that a sexual assault. But I mean that big motherfucker could kick the shit out of anybody. I'm sure it didn't feel good and he should be taken seriously just as any woman because it didn't make him feel good to be a sexual object of desire. And be approached that way and used that way. But I don't believe he did anything sexually with anybody. It's just he had gay men make sexual advances on him and stuff like that in the movie business. So he came out and said, hey, it's here. It's it's guys are facing it too. Guys like me, buff, big tittied, muscled up meatheads are having to deal with it to get our roles too. So it's not just the women. And he came out and let it be known. But what about what's happening on college campuses? What about consensual sex with uh, innocent people being involved? Like, you know, you're at a frat party or whatever. And is it to the point where we're going to have to get contracts signed before you have sex? Because the next day the girl might wake up and go, oh, fuck that. I did not want to sleep with this guy. I am pressing charges. And he loses his career. Uh, that he's going to pursue going to Harvard University because he's kicked out and possibly thrown in jail because you say that he took advantage of you and raped you. Um, and I mean, you could flip this, you could say a girl did it to a guy too, but it's always more believable when a girl says a guy did it to them. So, there's a responsibility and an ethic that needs to be faced here in the Me Too movement because. It's just, it's new. It's something that we haven't been dealing with for more than, what, three, four, five years? And there's been a lot of bad cases come about because of this. Outside the Hollywood scope, I'm talking with people just... Partying, having fun, drugs or drinking or whatever, being involved. Yes, you make some bad decisions, but you got to take responsibility for your decisions and who you wake up beside, what dick you had up inside you, what poonanny you were stabbing for the evening. Whatever it is, if you guys made a consensual decision to do it, that's your choice. You did it. Be responsible for your decision. Don't try and ruin somebody's life over being a shame waking up the next day maybe cuz the girl was fat or the dude was fucking ugly or whatever you know you just made a bad choice and that's what you learn when you do stupid shit when you're younger it can happen when you're older too but anyways above and beyond my intellectually stimulating discussion on the me too subject let's hear what somebody like a lame person like jordan peterson has to say I know he doesn't have anything smarter to say than me.
1: We've had relatively reliable birth control since 1960. Okay. That's not very long. And we underestimate the unbelievable technological triumph of birth control. It's It's the hydrogen bomb. It's the transistor. Like, it's a major league transformation in human interaction. Women are now free from involuntary reproduction. That's never been the case in the entire history of the planet. Okay? We don't know exactly what to do about that. Okay, so the first idea in the 60s was, hell, (laughs) let's party. And, you know, you can see why. It's like... What the rules for not engaging in um, promiscuous sexual intercourse seemed to have vanished. So we had a couple of decades of experimentation. It's like, well, how'd that go? Little hard on the family, I would say. That's not so good for kids. AIDS, that wasn't a plus. Could have killed us all. And it mutated, particularly to take advantage of promiscuous sex, because viruses are very tricky things. So, it turns out that sex is a little bit more complicated than we thought. Well, it actually turns out that it's a lot more complicated than we think. Okay, and now it's 50, 60 years later, and we're trying to sort this out. It's like, well, when is it okay to have sex? Exactly. And when is it not okay to have sex? And what does it mean that it's okay? And what does consent mean? And the answer to that is, well, we never used to have to think these things through because the rule was don't have sex until you get married. That was the rule. Now that isn't the rule. Okay, so what's the rule? Well, we're not having a conversation about the rule. We're waiting till someone does something that seems like it might be untoward and then mobbing them and trying to extract the rule out that way. And it's not a very effective way of doing it. You know, you want to decrease campus rape? That's easy. Get of alcohol. No one has that conversation. It's like I did my PhD work on alcohol. 50% of the people who are murdered are drunk. And 50% of the people who kill them are drunk. And almost all the date rape situations are consequences of excess intoxication. But yet there's a party culture on campuses and anything goes. And you also have this strange thing, especially on the radical left, which is which is unbelievably paradoxical, where absolutely every form of sexual expression imaginable is 100 percent permissible because sex is fine. But it's so dangerous that while you're dancing with someone at a Princeton mixer, you have to ask them two or three times if it's okay for you to continue. And, and that's that's actually the case, by the way. I'm not making that up. It's like, well, both of those things can't be true. Now, what's happening, I think, on the me too end of things and the affirmative consent end of things is the old sexual taboos are reasserting themselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The idea that we can extract sex out from emotional intimacy, and especially emotional intimacy, I would say, psychological intimacy, maybe even from long-term relationship, is I don't believe it's a tenable idea. I don't think we can do it. And a lot of what we're seeing is the backlash against that. It's like, well, I feel used. You know, because one of the things that's happening on the really radical end of the anti uh, sexual abuse movement is the idea that, well, if you have intercourse with someone and then you regret it the next day, that's evidence that it wasn't consensual. Well, it is in a sense evidence that it wasn't consensual because it's evidence that you didn't bloody well think it through, right? It was good for last night, but it's not good for today. It's not very wise. The question is, well, what constitutes consent, and we need to have a very serious conversation about that. Like, under what circumstances is it acceptable to give consent? But we're not mature enough to have that conversation. We want it both ways. We want to be able to do whatever we want, with whoever we want, whenever we want, with no consequences. And we want there never to be any trouble about consent. It's like, well... No, that's not going to happen. I don't think that sex works very well outside of committed relationships. I don't think there's any evidence that it does. There's a strong proclivity across cultures for for the enforcement, social enforcement of long-term monogamy. And there's reasons for that. And I think you deviate from that at your peril. So now, if you, if you want to deviate from that, there's all sorts of reasons to do it. Um, and I can understand why people are interested in adventure and all of that. But, you know, my sense also as a clinician is, you know, you only really get to try out about five people in your life. You have to make a decision pretty damn quick. You know, like between 20 and 30, there's a lot of things to get straight. And long-term mate is usually one of them. And most of the time... People should be more careful with their sexual behavior when they're young, especially when they're drunk, than they are. And I think it, I just think it's so interesting that all of the taboo reconstruction is coming from the radical left. It's not what you'd expect at all. You'd think it'd be the damn right wing Christians complaining about, you know, sexual immorality. It's like, no. It's the radical lefties. You know, you, you have to have signed consent before making any physical move. And then that's a what really who thought that up? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know how awkward that would be. You know, you're supposed to be able to do a little bit of nonverbal reading. Right. I mean, that's part of romance. You don't see it. You ever see a movie where the two people who are dating exchange consent notes like that doesn't happen. So it's an unrealistic solution. But but I think the real solution is that despite the fact that we have reliable birth control, we're going to have to relearn what the acceptable rules of propriety are with regards to sexual relationships. One of the things I often tell my young clients is don't do anything physically with anyone that you wouldn't talk to them about. Because if you're too damn embarrassed to talk about it, well, maybe it's a little premature in the relationship to actually do it. And then there's harm in it. You know, there's emotional harm in it. for On both parties. There's the cheapening of both parties. So, well, so, it's going to take us a long time to sort this out. But hopefully we can do it in a serious manner and, and it won't be merely a matter of mobbing those who seem to have made an error. So, I mean, do you you want a a state with more regulatory power? Do you want a state with more surveillance? I mean, first of all, why would you think that that would be trustworthy when all the evidence suggests in the past that as a state expands its surveillance power, it actually becomes less trustworthy rather than more? And why would you want? You might think, well, I certainly want someone looking into your affairs, but I don't want anybody looking into mine well good luck with that because you know to the degree that i have someone elect someone to look into your affairs they're bloody well going to be looking into mine as well and that just doesn't strike me as a particularly positive development and practically because i don't believe it'll work i don't think surveillance states do make people more honest i think all the evidence is the opposite and then i would say from the individual perspective it's like i believe that the the fundamental what we got fundamentally right in the West, because there was a number of things we got fundamentally right, even though we don't like to admit that anymore, is that the ultimate moral responsibility for the state relies on you. It relies on your moral integrity. And, you know, you can, it's not that hard to think that through. It's like, well, first of all, you have the right and the responsibility to vote. And we could say, well, that's not exactly given to you by the state. It's, it's something that exists in some in some sense outside and before the state. It's part and parcel of your intrinsic value. Okay, so that's a decision that we've made in the West, that each person, regardless of their flaws, is characterized by a value, an intrinsic value that's so deep and so profound that the very... Uh, regulation of the state itself rests on their shoulders and that's really something that's that's why you have the right to vote and that's worth thinking about The, the first question is well do you think that's a good idea or not do you believe that we are in fact sovereign individuals and then well let's assume that you believe that we are because the alternative is some sort of autocracy, right? It's some sort of tyranny. It's it's the it's the parsing off of that sovereignty to a bureaucracy or to some arbitrary form of leadership. And maybe you can believe in that, and you'd like a strong leader, and fine. But you you want to think that through. Because if, if it's not that, then it's you. Well, then it's if it's you, and you have to make sure that the ship of state is sailing properly, then the first thing you might want to ask yourself is, what makes you think you're any more trustworthy than the people that you're that you're despising or criticizing? I mean, if, if you are, well, more power to you. But it isn't self-evident that you are, and my suspicions are that it's not even self-evident to you that you are. Because it's a very rare person that you come across if you talk to them with any degree of seriousness. You know, they're able to lay out a, a whole litany of, of Ways they fall short of their own value, their own values, not values that other people are putting on them. Certainly that as well. And they can name innumerable ways that not only are they not doing what they should be doing, so they're falling short of the mark in that way, but they're doing all sorts of things that they definitely shouldn't be doing. And they know it. It's like, well, we're going to put that right or not? And my sense is, You know, I wrote a rule in my book, put your house in perfect order before you complain about the world, before you criticize the world. What's the idea? It's like, well, you're the sovereign, man. If the states, if the ship of state is listing and sinking, that's you. That's your problem. It's your fault. You're not doing it right. You're not educated enough, you're not awake enough, you're not articulated enough, articulate enough, you don't know enough about history, you're not taking on enough responsibility, you're looking for other people to blame because it's convenient. And, and, and that's kind of understandable because it's the dispersal of responsibility. Who wants all that responsibility? But there's a huge price to be paid for it. The, the first price that you pay for it is, well, there goes the adventure of your life. It's like you could get yourself together and be the bedrock of the state, right? That'd be hard. That'd call on everything that you have. That would be your adventure. You're going to pass that off to someone else? And then, then what do you do? You've got nothing left in your life but triviality. And you can't live. I don't believe that people can live ethically, trivially. That's why I think the pursuit of the idea that life is for happiness is wrong because life is too difficult for that to be the case our lives are too profound too characterized by suffering and malevolence the world is too characterized by trouble at every level for happiness to be the proper solution the re- the solution is something like a heavy burden of ethical responsibility the-, the kind that sets the state straight and then in that you find the purpose of your life and so not only if you want the external monitoring and the surveillance state, not only do you sacrifice your privacy and invite all that invasive attention and lose your impulsive freedom, you lose everything that's profound about your life and someone takes it from you. They take your destiny from you. And that's no way to live. That's just, that's the tyranny that we've struggled against in the West successfully for, I would say, in one way or another for, for for a number of thousands of years and with a substantial amount of success.
0: More clarity on another very touchy subject. Thank you, Mr. Peterson. Now one thing, somebody as intellectual in the psychological realm as Mr. Peterson is, that may seem... Uh... Maybe an odd realm to dive into is the existence of God. Because usually when we talk scientists, people that are on a hyper-educated level, they generally don't want to believe in God. Peterson has a way of putting it that seems like it falls somewhere in between believing and not believing, which I think you need to hear for yourself. Now, me personally, if you've heard the podcast that I've done before, I think the world's too magical to go into depth here to name all the things that I think destined God as a maker of these things, because I just don't believe the perfection of the way everything in this universe is put together. Much less the earth itself and the planets spinning around in synchrony, dancing through this universe and the human body and the universe inside of every biological being down to the cells, the nucleus, the protons, the way it's all put together, the way it works in harmony, the way life and death recycles itself. All that biology in this universe is so complex and so beautiful in the harmony of the way it's put together that I believe. Now, do I prescribe to all the doctrines that man has written down in books? No, not necessarily. But do I believe in spiritually my soul will leave this decaying meat Ball that I'm living in someday. I mean, we're all just sacks of meat, just slowly dying. And do you believe that there's a force inside of you that will propel outside of it and go to live on? Let's hear what the leading psychological, philosophical thinker of our time has to say on the subject because it's so interesting the way he thinks about it and insightful. Maybe it'll help you determine the way you want to think about the subject or maybe you just want to hear what somebody this smart thinks about it. Take a listen.
1: People often ask me, do you believe in God? Which I don't, I don't like that question. First of all, it's an attempt to to it's an attempt to box me in in a sense and the reason that it's an attempt to box me in is because the question is asked so that i can be firmly placed on one side of a two of a binary argument and and the reason i don't like to answer it is because a i don't like to be boxed in and b because i don't know what the person means by believe or god and they think they know and the probability that they construe belief and construe God the same way I do is virtually zero so it's it's a question that doesn't work for me on multiple levels of analysis but but strangely enough just as we were talking I the answer to that question popped into my head I act as if God exists now you can decide for yourself whether that means whether that I believe in him so to speak but I act as if he exists So, that's a good enough answer for that. Then, with regards to these other issues, the divinity of Christ, well, I would say the same problems with the question formulation obtain. What do you mean by divine? And also, what do you mean by Christ? These are very, very difficult questions. Now, I believe that, for all intents and purposes, I believe that the Logos is divine, insofar as we... If, if by divine you mean of ultimate value, of ultimate transcendent value, yes, it's divine. It's associated with death and rebirth, clearly, because the Logos dismantles you and rebuilds you. So that's what happens when you make an error. When you make an error, some part of you has to go. That's a sacrifice. You have to let it go. Sometimes it's a big part of you. It's, it's, sometimes it can be such a big part of you that you actually die right instead of dying and being reborn is there something more than merely metaphorical about the idea of being of dying and being reborn yes there is because those are associated with physiological transformations how what's the ultimate extent of that that's a good question you know the question is what happens to the world around you as you imbo- as you increasingly embody the logos and the answer to that is we don't know we don't know what the ultimate level of this. Now, the hypothesis is, and it's a hypothesis that extends to some degree to Buddha as well. The hypothesis is that there has been one or two individuals who managed that. And that in their management of that, they transcended death itself. Well, then you might ask yourself, well, what do you mean by transcended death? Well, in the case of Christ, let's assume he was a historical figure for the for the time being, which I think is the simplest thing to assume. Um... I think there's sufficient evidence to conclude that. You could conclude otherwise, but personally I feel that there's sufficient evidence to conclude that. Um, Did he, is his resurrection real? Well, his spirit lives on. That's certainly the
3: case. In what sense do you mean spirit, just to qualify that?
1: How? Well, let's imagine that a spirit is a pattern of being. And we know that patterns can exist, patterns can be transmitted across multiple substrates, right? Vinyl, electronic impulses, air, vibrations in your ear, neurological patterns, dance. It's all the translation of what you might describe as a spirit, right? It's, It's that pattern. It's independent of its material substrate. Well... Christ's spirit lives on. It's, 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 a, it's had a massive effect across time. Well, is that an answer to the question? Did his body resurrect? I don't know. I don't know. It is The accounts aren't clear, for one thing. What the accounts mean isn't clear. I don't know what happens to a person if they bring themselves completely into alignment? I've had intimations of what that might mean. We don't understand the world very well. We don't understand how the world could be mastered if it was mastered completely. We don't know how an individual might be able to manage that. We don't know what transformations that might make possible. I'm going to do a series on the Bible. One, That's one of the things I want to investigate more thoroughly and formulate my thoughts about more thoroughly, because it is a crucial issue. A friend of mine said, and I wouldn't describe him, he's certainly not the sort of person that you would describe as a classic Catholic. He's an extraordinarily well-educated individual, and he's come back to Christianity uh, with the most vicious of internal battles you know, and he said to me he was the same person who made the comments earlier about the dominance hierarchy and, and so he's very insightful now, he said that it all falls apart unless you believe in the divinity of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ and he meant that in a very fundamental way and um, there's a way in which that's true but I don't know exactly what it means yet like, the metaphorical element of that, to me, is quite clear. The death and rebirth idea, yeah, I mean, you see that echoed all over. It's it's the most recent manifestation of that idea, is, or one of the most recent manifestations, popular manifestations, is in the Harry Potter series, because it's full of deaths and rebirths of the it, central hero.
3: Is it not a manifestation of hope for something beyond the finality with which... Of which we've become inescapably conscious. As well. well,
1: yes, and of course that's that's the Freudian critique, right? He just thought about it as a wish fulfillment. Although that the problem with that theory is, well, you know, people also generated up the idea of hell, which doesn't, you know, you could say, well, that's a convenient place to put your enemies, and still put it in the wish fulfillment framework. But I think that's absurdly cynical. I mean, right. people who believe in hell are terrified of hell. About. For it's for themselves, and in my estimation, they should be because I also believe in hell. Although what that means again is, you know, subject to interpretation. Lots of people live in hell, and lots of people create it.
3: But it, beyond the the sort of the basic Freudian, you know, snide interpretation, yeah. is it not a, a belief in the identification with something that transcends your limited?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. That's well, but it's funny too because in the more Christian formulations, there's an insistence on the resurrection of the body, which I find extremely interesting. You know, even the, say, more sophisticated, deist types, are kind of willing to go along with the idea that there might be something eternal, transcendent about. Consciousness, or about the spirit, or the soul, something like that. But they're they're certainly not willing to go beyond that. But there's this very peculiar emphasis in Christianity on the resurrection of the body, which is a glorification of the body, which is quite interesting. You know, it's not something you want to dismiss so so rapidly because it is a glorification of the body and an indication of the necessity of the body, of that limitation.
3: Could th- could that not be an instance of what we were describing earlier in terms of an instant a specific instantiation? Of a general, purpose. yeah, right. And it's the instantiation itself that makes it real. The body is the most real thing that we experience on it on an individual.
1: Right. Well, and it, yeah, and it's real in part because it's it's limited, right? right? It has limitations.
3: So the focus on the mythological representation of the body is resurrected is saying this is more real. This is just as real as as you can imagine. Yes.
1: It. Yes. Well, it's an elevation of the material. Interestingly enough, right? Not a denial of the material. An elevation of the material. It's a very interesting idea. Um, and as I said, I want to explore that more because I'm not, I'm not fully comfortable with my, my ability to bridge the gap between the metaphorical and the real. Although I think that the way that I described it is as close as, it's as, close as I can come right now. Magical things happen as the Logos manifests itself. Now that's self-evidently true
3: when when people and when you say magical, you mean magical for uh, for all intents and purposes in terms of our perception as uh relatively naive human consciousness or, or magical in like you know rabbits out of hats
1: Well, certainly the former, and God only knows about the latter so you know that takes us afield into strange areas, um, you, like Jung's Jung, Jung's observations of synchronous events, for example. Yes. We don't understand the world. Like I do think the world is is more like a musical masterpiece than it is like anything else, and things are oddly connected. Now, you know, I know that sounds New Agey and it sounds metaphysical, and I'm I'm saying bluntly this this is speculative, right? I'm feeling out beyond my my the limits of my knowledge, but. There are things I'm not willing to dismiss, the mysterious, because I've experienced the mysterious in a variety of different ways, and it's very mysterious. Very.
3: From a cognitive perspective, is that not the most rational position to take in any case? Because we know our cognition is inherently bounded by a whole range of constraints
1: well we certainly know that we're bounded by ignorance and that there's far more going on than we than we know or can know we do the problem is is that when you start to speculate it's a projection of your imagination now that's not necessarily a bad thing because that is actually knowledge advances through projection of imagination but the problem is the you you can see yourself reflected back at you and then and then it's self-fulfilling so, and so you can see what you want
0: So there you have it, a deep, insightful look at the possibility of God, the maker of all that exists from a hyper intellectual mind, probably a little bit smarter than me and you and most people out there. So it's nice to dive into the mind of somebody that is a hyper intellectual and hear what they have to say about topics like all of these These were very, like I said at the beginning, polarizing, very divisive, very explosive topics for us to look into. So having his opinion generated on these subjects for us to digest is good for anybody. It's just out of curiosity. You want to hear what somebody like this has to say. And so for now, I'll leave you with this. If you value deep psychology and philosophy, then you know this guy, Jordan Peterson, has plenty of material for you. He delivers it in a way that most laymen can understand and appreciate. So I would recommend check out his podcast, check out his lectures on YouTube, and check out all of his books that he has put out. It's all positive stuff. Today, we took a dive into some more, uh, you could call it negative material the world's dealing with at the moment. All that except for God. Um, But in general, what he deals with is the psychology of making yourself a better person and getting your life in order. And the way he talks about it, describes it, lays it out, the laws, the rules, how to do it fantastic phenomenal stuff you can't go wrong you can only make your life better by digesting his material so I highly recommend it take a look at it and do yourself the favor of making your life better thanks for joining me for this one as always if you are enjoying the show please tell a friend tell a family member rate and review the show And if you would do me the favor of subscribing to monthly support for the show, as low as a dollar a month, that would do me a great favor, keeping this thing afloat, keeping it moving forward so I can keep producing the show because I want to and I need to. I got a passion for this, so help me out if you can. And as always, thanks for joining in. Love you out there in podcast land. Take care, and I will catch you on the next one. Take care, folks. Bye. Keeping it real.
3: Do not consider these episodes as medical advice or expertise in any area. I do deconstruct some experts and their material and deliver it to you, but please do all of this at your own risk. Keep being
2: in